Well, I'd like to begin this morning by asking you to imagine that you found out you're the heir of a great fortune that you will most likely inherit within the next decade. The person who owns the estate now is uh, elderly, they have uh, some health problems that uh, aren't terminal this month or this year, but they have a kidney disease or a heart condition that it's going to run its course, and within the next decade or so, you're going to inherit the estate. And imagine for a moment that the executor of the estate comes to you and says, we want to reassure you that your estate is secure. I mean, just the property is worth tens of millions of dollars. There could be a crash in the housing market, deflationary, depression. Uh, it could drop half its value, and it would still be worth tens of millions of dollars. We're not concerned about the security of uh, what you're going to inherit. If I may be candid, we're concerned about you. You worry us. Uh, your health isn't the greatest, and so we're going to, uh, the estate is going to pay to give you the best medical care possible. We're going to get you a dietitian because we'd like you to lose a few pounds. Uh, we're going to get you a trainer because you need to get some exercise. And uh, we just want to do everything we can to make sure that you arrive at the moment when you can enjoy the inheritance that's yours. I, I share that story because if you've been reconciled to God through Christ, then that is a picture of how God deals with you in regards to your heavenly inheritance. He's not just guarding your inheritance. He's guarding and protecting you for the inheritance He has laid up for you. The Apostle Peter explains it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, it's secure, reserved in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Through Christ, you have a secure inheritance in heaven. Why is it secure? Not just because God, God is guarding your inheritance, but also because He's guarding you. He's shepherding you on your heavenly journey so that you'll arrive safely home. The security of your heavenly inheritance then connects with a doctrine that we need to stop and talk about, a doctrine that we uh, tend to refer to as the doctrine of eternal security. Here at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe in and we teach the doctrine of eternal security. Uh, we teach that all who have truly come to Christ are eternally secure. Now, there is a section in our doctrinal statement about salvation. It has three paragraphs, and the third paragraph is about eternal security, and it reads this way. The salvation of every believer is secure for all eternity from the moment of the new birth. Why do we believe in eternal security? Well, because of our understanding of the new birth. A radical change takes place in a person's heart when they repent of their rebellion against God and rely on Christ's sacrifice to save them from their rebellion. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of this new birth under the new covenant, and when he does, he likens it to a spiritual heart transplant where a hard-hearted heart of stone is taken out of a person, and God gives them a, a soft, tender heart of flesh uh, that is responsive to the Holy Spirit's shaping and molding influence. Now, we need to say this to be balanced. 
It is true that that truly born again, uh, sometimes we use the word regenerated, that truly born again, new regenerated heart can still fall into sin. Truly born again Christians actually can commit they're capable of committing some pretty terrifying sins. Uh, truly born-again Christians are very capable of running away from God in anger. Uh, born-again Christians are very capable of ignoring God for seasons of time. But the truly born-again new heart will never permanently fall away from the faith. This is sometimes called also the perseverance of the saints. It's the truth that the truly regenerate heart will persevere in faith, in Jesus until the end. Now, within contemporary Christianity, there are many Christians, actually probably more than us numerically, who uh, disagree with this doctrine of eternal security. For instance, classic Arminianism teaches that uh, salvation is fully a person's choice, and God doesn't force anybody into the kingdom, and if someone wants to leave the faith in the middle of their heavenly journey, God wouldn't force them to stay in the faith. Now, I don't think uh, uh, our view what I, and what I teach isn't that God is forcing anybody to do anything. That's, that's confusing the issue. But the point is this. Within the logic of Arminianism and Arminianism's uh, previous theological commitments, that makes perfect sense. It totally adds up. The problem with it is this, though. To say that the regenerated, reborn heart would permanently leave the faith is talking about a different understanding of, that's a totally different understanding of the second birth. It makes the real change that happens in a person's heart at salvation a little thing. Uh, it, it devalues uh, the power of regeneration. Now, having said that, our doctrine of the new birth is not the primary reason that I believe in eternal security. You see, our doctrinal statement goes on to say something further. It doesn't just refer to the new birth as the reason we teach eternal security. Our doctrinal statement goes on to say this, this security is guaranteed by the fact that the life that's imparted is eternal life by the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that the spiritually reborn heart will never permanently fall away from God. It's also that the Holy Spirit helps keep us in this faith. Though it is true that I believe in the perseverance of the saints with all my heart, I believe even more in the preservation of the saints by the Holy Spirit. And the preservation of the saints by the Holy Spirit is the theme of the verses we come to in Ephesians chapter 1 today. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 1 verse 3. And we're going to finish our study of uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through verse 14. Uh, at the beginning of this letter to the Ephesians church, Paul breaks out in a very long sentence of praise that runs from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. And in it, he praises every member of the Trinity for their work together in the plan of redemption. He praises the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this morning, we're going to focus on the Holy Spirit's role in the eternal plan of redemption in verses 13 and 14. But I have a reason why I want to read the whole sentence to you. So let's read this again together, Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to the kind, excuse me, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth." In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise." who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, the sealing ministry of Your Holy Spirit is one of the great spiritual blessings You've given us in Christ. And as we study it now, please show us what it is and how it works so that we can live in the joy and the confidence that eternal security is supposed to produce in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The main point of this impossibly long sentence of praise that uh, Paul starts Ephesians with is that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And after verse 3, Paul goes on to enumerate what those blessings are. Uh, these blessings include the Father choosing us before the foundation of the world, uh, not only for salvation, but to become holy, verse 3. They include us being destined by the Father before we were ever born to be adopted as His sons and daughters, verse 4. Uh, these blessings include uh, the redemption from our slavery to sins by the blood of Christ, verse 7. They include wisdom and insight and knowledge of God's ultimate plan for human history, verses 8 through 10. And they also include a heavenly inheritance that's greater than any earthly inheritance we could ever receive. And the verses we come to today tell us how we can know that the blessing of this future inheritance that is talked about, how we can know that it is secure. How do we know that we'll arrive at that future day when we will enjoy this inheritance? Answer, verse 13, well, it's through the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And verse 14, it's through the fact that God gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the inheritance He intends to give us. So it's based on then the person and work of the Holy Spirit that we can walk in tremendous assurance and confidence that we'll receive the inheritance, which means Christ has not left us to say things to ourselves like, well, I don't know if I'll get to heaven. I, when I die, I'm not sure if I'll go to be with the Lord. If what Paul says is true and we believe it, then we're not left by Christ to say those things while we're on our heavenly journey. But I've gotten ahead of myself. That's the conclusion. So let's actually look at what this sealing ministry of the Spirit is. Because I admit, I read it in English, and, and even as a pastor, I'm like, 
I don't even know what that means. I know what a seal is. I don't even understand. So let's look at, we need to understand what is this sealing ministry of the uh, Holy Spirit? What is it? How does it work? What's its purpose? Um, and what I'd like to do today is explain the sealing ministry of the Spirit from this passage, but by asking and answering a number of questions. Uh, and you can see the outline in your bulletin. I didn't necessarily state them as questions, but I'm making those statements asking about this sealing so that we can understand what it is. And the first question is this, who does this sealing connect us to? We'll look again at verse 13. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Well, if you follow Paul's thought, in the flow of his thought, in Him refers back to Christ. This is who he's speaking of. And so, whatever this sealing of the Holy Spirit is, it connects us permanently to Christ. So, Christ then becomes our representative. He lived a perfect life in our place. He died a sacrificial death for sins in our place. He, he died the death our sins deserve. And so, this sealing of the Holy Spirit, it connects us to Christ. But what does this sealing, uh, when does it take place? Um, many of these blessings we've looked at have either been in the past with ongoing um, with, with ongoing benefits, or they've been like our inheritance is mostly a future uh, kind of blessing we look forward to. When does this sealing take place? Well, Paul tells us the timing. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed. So, Paul defines exactly when we received this blessing of the Spirit's sealing. It was after you listened to the message of truth and believed it. Uh, now, the idea of this message of truth is that it's a true message that corresponds perfectly to reality, and Paul uses an appositive phrase. I know that sounds like a big word, but in English, it's just a defining phrase right after the message of truth so that no one's confused what is the message of truth. It's the gospel of your salvation. So, it's the good news uh, of forgiveness of sins through Christ. And a day came in your life when you heard that message and you responded to it, you believed in it. And when that happened, it was at that point that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So, this sealing of the Spirit is a past blessing that has ongoing benefits in our lives that gives us, uh, in the present, the ongoing benefit is that it gives us assurance of salvation. But with what did God the Father seal us? Well, it's not so much a matter of with what, but with who did the Father seal us. Look again at verse 13. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And notice again here, I, I've brought this out multiple times in our series through Ephesians 1. Notice again here the passive language. We didn't actively seal ourselves. God the Father sealed us with the Holy Spirit in such a way that we're then connected permanently to Christ. So, God the Father sealed us not with uh, something, but with a person. He sealed us with the person of the Holy Spirit. And I believe the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit of promise here because the Holy Spirit was promised in the Old Testament. Do you realize that there are not just messianic prophecies about the coming of God's Savior into the world in the Old Testament, you can also find prophecies about God sending the Holy Spirit into the world. Uh, let me give you an example. 
Uh, in Ezekiel 36, God says this about the new covenant. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Uh, Another prophecy of the coming of the Holy Spirit would be our Lord Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. Uh, If you remember, He told His disciples, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. And uh, if you know your New Testament, you know that in Acts chapter 2, we have a record of God the Father sending the Holy Spirit uh, to bless the church and indwell believers on the day of Pentecost in the exact same calendar year as when Jesus ascended into heaven. And so, uh, there is prophecies about the coming of the Spirit, and I believe that's why Paul calls Him the Spirit of promise in this context. But the final question I want to pose and answer about this sealing of the Holy Spirit really gets to the heart of the issue. Why were we sealed? Why is it significant enough for Paul to mention? And what in the world was the Father attempting to accomplish in sealing us? Well, Paul tells us that the Father, in in these verses that follow, I believe he's going to tell us the Father had two purposes. One purpose is for us, and one purpose is in reference to Himself. Let's look first at the goal the Father had for us. If you study why seals were used in the ancient world, you'll find that they had four purposes, and we still use seals in our own day for these same four purposes. Um, The first purpose of a seal in ancient times was to prove ownership. In the ancient world, deeds were often sealed in the presence of witnesses, indicating that a property now belonged to a new owner. Um, I know in our current day, Uh, I know some people who I would call bibliophiles, that is to say people who love books and who have extensive personal libraries. Even the decorating in their home has to yield to having bookshelves everywhere. And and if if you know, if there's a bibliophile in your life, you know this, many of them like to have a stamp, and when they get a new book, and you'll even catch them like, smelling the new book. They even like the new book smell. Uh, uh, but, But what they'll do is they'll take their stamp and they stamp the inside of the front cover or the upper right-hand corner of the title page because they want other people to know, and especially other people who borrow books and don't have a tendency of giving them back, uh, they want everybody to know, hey, I own this book. The seal is, uh, is meant to show ownership. Uh, sealing was also used in the ancient world to certify the genuineness of something. So, for instance, kings would seal a letter that was only for the eyes of a noble or a general. You know, it wasn't for everybody's eyes. Uh, It was only for those in leadership. But they would seal that letter to give confidence, to certify that letter, and to give the recipient confidence that it was not some kind of clever forgery. It was used to uh, show genuineness. Um, And the Holy Spirit's presence in our own lives, particularly when the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, uh, that certifies that someone is a genuine follower of Jesus. Seals were also used in ancient times to demonstrate authority. For instance, if a king, excuse me, if a king made a proclamation, or let's say there was a brand new law, 
and they wrote out that law to be hung in public places. Sometimes they'd put a seal somewhere on that law to help everybody who came by and read it, uh, to, to help them understand that it came with the king's authority. A good modern example would be this. Uh, last year, I received a very friendly letter from the county of Spotsylvania, and it was a jury summons. And at the top of that summons was this elaborate, artistically done seal, and that seal wasn't there at the top of the summons, uh, just like, uh, like a, a company in the private sector would use as a logo, right, to, to make the letterhead look nicer. That seal was there to communicate to me that the summons was not a suggestion. It came with authority, and I could only ignore the summons with legal consequences. And I think there is a correlation there for us in the Christian life. Uh, before Jesus ascended into heaven, He gave this command to the church. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. When we accurately represent Jesus, particularly in our presentation of the gospel, uh, then we, have a, uh, we speak with authority, and the Holy Spirit is our seal. Now, let me be clear. Christians lose that authority when we misrepresent what Jesus taught or misrepresent the gospel or when we uh, use the pulpit to preach our own opinions or man-made traditions or man-made laws. We lose that authority. But to the extent that we accurately represent Christ in our generation, the Holy Spirit is a seal of our authority when He uses our words with those who hear. And then the fourth use of seals in ancient times was to guarantee security. If you remember, the chief priests uh, asked Pilate to have the tomb of Jesus sealed for the purposes of security. And uh, we use seals for the same purpose in our own day. Uh, if you go to the gas station, uh, there is a seal on all the gas pumps that you'll see, and that seal comes from the person in our state who, and the department in our state that is responsible for weights and measures. And what it is is that seal shows you that the device in the pump uh, that pairs uh, the price per gallon with how much gas is being pumped, that that has not been tampered with by some unscrupulous uh, gas station owner, right? And it's really helpful because, I don't know, if you're like me, when you pump gas, it sure seems like the wheel spins quicker than it used to. Uh, and that seal is there to help us understand, no, you're getting the amount of gas you paid for at the advertised price. It guarantees security. Now, uh, when we look at seals and we consider the uses of seals in ancient and modern times, I think we would have to say that when God sealed us with the Holy Spirit, He didn't need the seal of the Holy Spirit to perform any of the functions I just talked about for His own sake. He, he knows who He owns. He knows who He's adopted as children. He knows His sons and daughters by name. Uh, he has an intimate knowledge of the genuineness of their salvation. He knows His plans for their eternity are secure. He doesn't need the seal to remind Himself of anything. Uh, I believe He's given us the seal 
to convince us of the truth that we belong to Him, and that even though we still stray into sin because of our moral weakness, we can still be assured that we are His children. Uh, And of those four uses that sealing was used for, I believe the one that Paul has most in mind in this passage is a seal being used for security, and I'm not just making that up. That's not my opinion. I'm saying that based on what Paul says next. Look what he says next in verse uh, 14. Uh, We were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Uh, Now, you know in English, uh, a pledge is a promise. Uh, God has given us the Holy Spirit as a promise that we will receive our inheritance. But there's more here. In Greek, that word that we translate as pledge, it really means a down payment. And you guys are very familiar with down payments, right, if you buy a house. Uh, When you go to buy a house, once you've negotiated all the details and the contracts are uh, signed, and uh, there's this expectation that you're going to give a down payment, and that down payment is a good faith gesture that you will actually pay back all the money you owe for purchasing the house. Uh, So, God has sealed us with His Holy Spirit uh, and given us this Holy Spirit then as a down payment of our salvation. Uh, He's uh, sealed us with the Holy Spirit to assure us that we are secure in His love and that we are secure in the inheritance He will give us. And why did He do this? Why did He seal us with reference to Himself? Well, He sealed us, end of verse 14, to the praise of His glory. Now, Paul has repeated that the motive of God behind why He's giving us these undeserved blessings, He's now repeated three times that why God is giving us these blessings is for the praise of His own glory. And we need to stop and talk about that, okay, because this can be confusing. I don't think it needs to be confusing, but I think it can be confusing to people, and here's the reason why. Uh, On the human level, just on the horizontal human level as we interact with other people made in God's image. When someone does something for the purpose of the praise of their own glory, we don't like it. We think that they're glory hogs or that they're arrogant or that they're self-serving or they're self-centered or narcissistic. We even have a name for them. We call them, uh, in extreme forms, we call them megalomaniacs, right? Uh, We don't like it. And so, how is it that God could do these things? And we know from other portions of Scripture, God is not just doing this only for His own glory. He's doing it because He loves us. But still, that, that focus on His own glory and God loving His own glory and putting His glory on display… It it can be confusing to us because it can come off in the human realm, it comes off as arrogant. So, how can God do this for the praise of His glory and have it be a good thing? Well, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis gives an answer. Now, I confess I'm breaking a rule of homiletics. My my homiletics teacher at seminary would be so unhappy with me right now. I'm going to give a quote from C.S. Lewis that is way too long for any sermon right? And it's easy when… I don't know about you, but when pastors quote things, I start checking out, even though I know they chose the quote because they love it, and it's really… But anyway, this is a long quote, but try to stick with me. I'll do my best to do Lewis justice. This is what he says in Reflections in the Psalms about God pursuing and having a love for His own glory. He says, 
I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, winds, dishes, authors, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I smile because he's a scholar, so he's being funny now. Even sometimes scholars get praised. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious, capacious means big-hearted, the most balanced and, and big-hearted minds praised most while the cranks and the misfits and the malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge others to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that's magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak about what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regard to God, what we delight to do, what we cannot help but do, with everything else of value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes our enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. Brothers and sisters, can you see the implication of what Lewis is saying? God is not a megalomaniac for putting His glory on display so that His people will recognize it and respond to it. In doing so, He is doing what's best for their greatest joy. Or maybe, let's put it another way. If it bothers you that God has a passion for His own glory, just stop and, and think about this. If you're going to criticize Him for that, which is an option on the table, you also need to be willing to give us an alternative. What's the alternative? Well, God's only other alternative, if He isn't going to magnify His own glory and put that on display, His only other alternative is to be untrue to Himself and counsel and instruct and advise us to give glory and honor and praise to some created thing that He's made. But He knows that won't satisfy us in the long run. The, the created things will never satisfy our souls in the long term. And so, the most loving thing for God to do is to show us His glory because we were made to see His glory and delight in it. And one of the ways we delight in it is completing our delight by praising Him through song and through words and through self-expression, the arts. That's how we glorify God. So, when God magnifies Himself, He receives the glory that He's due, and we perceive and respond to it, and when we do so, we receive our greatest joy. So, God glorifying Himself and our highest happiness, those two things are not in some kind of competition. They harmonize. It is a good, beautiful, and true thing for God to lavish an undeserved inheritance on us and to be showing off how amazing He is as He lavishes this inheritance on us. The Father has prepared for you an inheritance that nothing can touch, and He is preserving you for your future inheritance 
by the Holy Spirit. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit so that in the future you'll receive your inheritance. Because of His power, because of His love, you have a secure inheritance. And what that means for you today, in this moment, is that you may not be rich in money, and you may not feel like you're rich in friends or in giftedness. You know, you may not be the most beautiful or athletic or intelligent, or you may not have accomplished everything you wanted to by this point. But Your life is moving towards an incalculable weight of glory and joy that you will receive when you come into your heavenly inheritance. And that is a great cause for hope and joy, even in the middle of the difficulties and disappointments that we each face this week. Let's pray.